Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. This is Jiro Taylor, your host. I'm coming at you from Mount Coulomb, which is where I'm currently residing in a beautiful treehouse that's, um, yeah, just surrounded by awesome trees on this very awesome piece of rock. I'm very happy up here on the sunny coast of Australia. I've come back recently from a, a solid 10 days of training with Masters. I did some breathwork training which was just amazing with a guy called Dan Brule, who's the breathwork coach of Tony Robbins. We learned a lot about uh, concepts like rebirthing, um, a breath technique called vivation, and just basically how, how powerful breathing really is when it comes to our state of consciousness and when it comes to repatterning our, our body-mind system. Um, and then I dropped into a Tantra retreat. Um, maybe I'll jump on another podcast one day to tell you about some of the awesome breakthroughs I had um, learning about Tantra and embodiment, radical intimacy, erotic friction. <laughs> um, anyway, I wanted to uh, introduce this uh, podcast. Um, today, we've uh, got a podcast um, based on my conversation with Kate Beecher. Uh, Dr. Kate Beecher is a performance psychologist, uh, a rock climber, mountaineer, uh, all-around nature lover. Um, I've known Kate for a while now and just been constantly blown away by the range of her interests, the dedication, her, her pursuit of mastery, the way that she walks the talk and she, the way that she blends a really high-level psychological scientific understanding of the mind with actual embodied action, risk-taking, walking the talk, getting up on that rock and putting herself in the challenge zone. Um, so in this conversation, in this in this interview, we cover a lot from how to deal with fear, the actual neuroscience and psychology of fear, um, how to actually, Kate's views on how to actually design our life so that we have greater fulfillment, so that we can learn to, to build in challenge into our life to help us grow and deal with existential crisis or meaninglessness. And then towards the end of the interview, Kate really sticks in some solid techniques when it comes to dealing with fear in the moment. So make sure you listen till the end. Um, okay, this is Jira signing out. Don't forget to check out flowtribe.co if you're looking for a community of like-minded flow seekers from around the world who are all coming together to do awesome stuff. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Hey, Kate. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jira. It's great to be here. Cool. So we've known each other for a few years now. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we always have the most fascinating conversations, um, so I thought it would be an absolute delight to, to get you on the show and discuss stuff that I don't even know what is yet. Um, but if you could just introduce yourself uh, briefly, just so people know a little bit about who you are and what you stand for. Okay. Uh, so I'm Dr. Kate Bacher. I am a clinical psychologist or a doctor of clinical psychology by trade. And where Jiro and I first met each other is when we came together with similar ideas about nature, about flow, about immersing yourself and being free in a way that often appears dissonant to society's expectations or the typical trajectory of things. So we have a lot of a lot of similar ideals, a lot of things that interestingly as a psychologist go off the typical pathway. I, at heart, I'm a climber. Um, I love the outdoors. I love the mountains, uh, mountaineering overseas, mountaineering, um, obviously up very high mountains, um, but climbing as well. And I've always used climbing as a conduit to flow. 
So whether or not it's the fear involved in it, whether or not it's uh, the kinesthetic sense of your body mapping on or whether it's just being so immersed in nature that you have a relationship with it, that you're working with it rather than against it, whatever the reasons behind it, the mountains and climbing for me uh, has always been a place of peace and a place of transformation. And I know that for you, Jiro, there's a lot of it that's to do with snow and either snowboarding and skiing or surfing and the ocean i think that's where um right at the beginning that's where our commonality mm. lay and then sparks just yeah <laughs> that's it that's it <laughs> so going. i think it, it was that intersection obviously that there's this external thing which is either sliding down waves or sliding down mountains or um holding onto rock on a vertical rock face on a on a mountainside and you know and then there's the internal piece um, which is what the hell is going on and why do we want to do more of it um, mm-hmm. and what's the addictive quality if that's the right word I'm not sure but what's what's the thing that keeps us going back and and um, makes us want to do this more and more um, mm. almost to the point where we design our lives around it um, mm-hmm. I've always found that a fascinating avenue to explore. And when I first set up Flow State, I remember being so fascinated by this, my, the way that I had designed my life around surfing, like moved countries and cities and like, like thought about massive decisions based around this, basically this thing that other people view as very trivial um, and almost silly. Um, so let's, let's use that as, a, as, as an opening to, to get into it. Mm. Like mm-hmm. what... When you first started this relationship with climbing, um, well, when was that? Just talk us through like how, how you got started on that journey. Well, I was introduced to climbing when I was in the UK on a gap year and a friend of mine literally said to me, my climbing partner's moved away. Do you want to be my climbing partner? And I had no idea what that meant at all and had never been climbing before, but, you know, I said yes. I thought I'd give it a go. And he took me out climbing and he put me on the rock and, you know, for people who climb, it was trad climbing. So it was, you know, it was, wasn't the easiest style of climbing to begin with. And from that moment onwards, and I don't know what it was, whether it was a challenge, whether it was his belief in me, but I got to the top of one of the climbs and I remember nearly falling over the top and just lying there with exhilaration and relief and adrenaline and the residue of almost panic from, you know, as you feel as you're climbing up there. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he burst out laughing and he said, I can't believe you made it up. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> he was like, I didn't think you'd make it all the way up. <laughs> Why would you put me on a climb that you didn't think I could do? And something about it always being challenging and always having to think, Mm. You know, when you're on the rock, you, you're, the only thing you can focus on is being on the rock and being in the moment. You know, the moment that you think about something else, you'll fall off it. So it's a purity of mind almost. It's a lot of the mindfulness side of things being in the moment. But I didn't even realise that at the time. It just crystallised everything for me. It meant when I was there, there was nothing superfluous around me. There was only myself, my climbing partner and the rock. And that's what kept me going. And the challenge, you know, <laughs> I'm mm. an A-type personality. So, you know, you could always grow. You could get better. There was always more rocks to climb. And being in your body, just, you know, working in your body, it was just a, a, a really simple but lovely almost meditation. Mm. 
how old were you then? I was 18 then. And so I hadn't done uh, a, really any other sort of climbing. So I climbed a lot more that year. And then I began, a few years later, I was in the army and I started to do some mountaineering. And I really only chose the mountaineering because it, <laughs> it was there and it looked great and the army was going to pay for it and it was a beginner's course and I thought, well, I really like the mountains. It's a challenge. I'm just going to give it a go and, and see what happens. Yeah. And then we got stuck in a blizzard. We had to, <laughs> we had to be in snow caves for four days, I think, because of the blizzard. And this was a group of beginners, so we really didn't know what was going on. I don't even think our snow caves were particularly effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ran out of food. We it was, it was just one of those things that it was, you know, a comedy of errors all the way through. One thing happened, another thing happened, another thing happened. And eventually we emerged from our snow caves, you know, four days later. And we had one beautiful day. And in the, in those snow caves, <laughs> I was possibly the most miserable I've ever been in my life. I was so cold. Now, the only way we could keep warm was body heat. So there was myself and two others in that cave. So we were just cuddled up for, you know, for three days straight. <laughs> and would have to go outside to go to the toilet, be so disoriented because we hadn't stood up for a couple of days. And <laughs> it was really quite miserable. And then we had this one phenomenal day and there was, you know, pristine blue skies, no wind, and being at altitude when you've only got white and blue and a couple of people around you, again, it was that pure essence of being in your body. Mm. And when I got back from that trip, we literally had one day out of seven that was a proper mountaineering day and one day out of seven that wasn't horrendously, horribly painful. And from that moment, I thought, I have to do more. And the rational part of my brain says, why? Why would you do that? Why would you do that when you hated six-sevenths of the entire trip? I reckon it was those... Maybe it was those three days of spooning in that ice cave. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But that's fascinating, though. So, yeah, there was a lot of pain involved. There was a lot of of struggle involved. But that, that, that experience was so transcendent or so blissful to you that it kind of... That's the thing that... That's the memory, is it? The dominant memory. I think so. And to some degree, it's, you know, when I think back now, and as you know, the psychologist, I tend to overanalyze everything. Mm. There is two other components. The first is that you are being in nature means that you are not in control. You know, it limits what you have control over. So there are always more powerful forces than you, and you have to either work against it or learn to work with it you know, have a relationship with nature and not fight it. And I think the second is people. You know, you're in, you see and you learn a very genuine, a very raw side of people and get to know them intimately um, and maybe not always in the best ways. But the connections that you develop with somebody in those environments can't be, you know, the only place that I've ever been able to see them elsewhere or that they've ever been mimicked or reflected is overseas in the military, is, you know, on deployment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's like on deployment or even just working with soldiers, you know, and that's where you see that, the closeness that, and the openness between people. Interesting. So I want, I'll get back to that control piece that you just mentioned. Um, because that's a really interesting avenue to explore. But just quickly on this, 
on this people piece. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. So I was having a conversation with a with, with a friend in Manly the other day, and um, he, he he was trying to explain something to me, and, and, and he was struggling to explain it. And um, when we got down to it, he was basically saying, yeah, I, I just feel like there's a whole bunch of ego and bullshit and masks being worn around here, and all I can see is people's projections of who they think they should be. Um, mm. And... And this obviously contrasts with what you're talking about here, I think, in sort of like extreme environments um, or in the, you know, and this is very, this is very relevant to the flow discussion, um, which we can sort of see as a egoless state or a, or a neurological state where the, that whole identification structure kind of like dissolves. But um, yeah, let's talk about how being around people in sort of... Um, these situations is different from you know like everyday life, everyday life, walking around Mossman or like catching up with yeah. your your buddies from university at a reunion or something, and having to do that whole social like navigation of am I saying the right thing and all that kind of stuff. Like, what's going on there? Like, what what exactly in your psychological perspective um, <laughs> is, is the difference? I think when. Society nowadays, uh, whether it's through the development of technology to make our lives easier or whether it's a shift in society's values across time, across eras, um, is, you know, as we know, it's far more about impressions and impression management than it is about the truth necessarily or an individual's truth. And walking around, you know, walking around in Mothman, walking around, you know, could be in the city, could be walking around anywhere, people tend to present a self, a a picture of themselves that is socially acceptable, but not necessarily who they really are. And we know this, but the bush, the bush, the sea, the ocean, nature strips that away because it doesn't care. And there is no reason for, there is no reason or no purpose for anyone who's out there to keep up the facade of it. In (laughs) fact, they can try but more often than not, it comes back to the, the power of nature overbearing, you will not overbearing, but taking um, the dominant role mm-hmm. wherever, you know. And I find that actually really comforting because basically all the things that happen in, in or all the all the things that society seems to value, whether it's a superficiality and consumerism that's associated with success, whether it's mm-hmm. the bigger houses, whether it's, you know, physical attractiveness, it nature equalises it. It both mm-hmm. takes it away, takes away the importance of it, mm-hmm. but it puts everybody on an equal playing field. And there is so much beauty in that because when you do that, the raw, authentic and honest self can actually come out, you know, good, bad or ugly. And I think for a lot of people, one of the fears they have about being in nature is that they don't know what that self is and they're scared of it or they're scared that it won't be accepted or liked by other people. But the truth is most people respond better to the rawness and they do, you know, rawness to rawness than they do to superficiality to superficiality. That's the irony of the whole thing. People tend to try and disguise their true essence because they're scared of social rejection when actually their true essence is what people would accept Mm. more readily and respect more openly. Mm, Very interesting. When, um, it's interesting, like how you know, like take Sir Ranulph Fiennes for example. He's like an example mm-hmm. of an explorer who's obviously of 
an aristocratic uh, class um, in our human hierarchical system. Um, and he's and there's many, aren't there? There's many like famous explorers who have come from that kind of like like royal background or whatever. And, and I'm sure part of it, a lot of it's got to do with being able to afford to, to mount an Everest summit or whatever. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but I wonder how much it's got to do with these people just getting so pissed off with, with, the, with the niceties and like the, the behavioral expectations of being in that world where you've just got to say the right thing all the time and constantly watch mm. yourself. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a lot of people who are just inherently. I think as humans, we are under challenged and understimulated. Yeah. Whereas you know, generations, years ago, all our body was used. You know, our body was used physically more than it is today. Nowadays, we most of the time people today sit down and then go to the gym and exercise for an hour a day. But yet, our bodies have evolved and designed to hunt and to gather. You know, to be more mm-hmm. primal, to be more physical. They don't need excess food. They don't need sugar they don't need excess comfort we, we we're not built that way we like it but we don't we're not built to need it necessarily mm-hmm. so i think there are some people whose brains are charged and there is science behind this you know but you know different neuro neurological systems or um you know people's sent their sensitivity to threat or uh, their personality type that's mapped on as a sensation seeker versus recklessness versus risk aversion. So there's a lot of uh, personality and chemical and neuro studies that have been done to, to show differences in particularly in adventurers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who are under-challenged by society today because they're not being utilised. Their brain isn't being fully utilised. The information is there in front of them they don't have to seek it out Mm. physically they're not on edge you know we Mm. talk in in yoga people the instructors will often talk about being on your edge and in day-to-day life now particularly in first world countries because we're very very fortunate we don't have to be on our edge so people who enjoy comfort and comfort zones you know exist beautifully in the world and they don't have to be challenged whereas in the past we were always challenged our bodies or our minds were for survival. And I wonder if actually tapping in to, you know, that that need for more is actually going back to our more primitive self, which is seeking, what am I trying to say? Seeking more extremeness, seeking No, no, seeking more extremeness, but, you know, survival required living required no I, can't, I need to get these words right but almost now our bodies and our minds are, are saying to us there is a restlessness there's more within us in order for me to thrive I need I need to tap back into what is the primitive physical and mental mode I need to tap into that intuition I need to feel I need to see I need to have you have those senses whereas our world, is designed to almost mute our senses. You know, you walk into a house and it's temperature controlled or an office and it's temperature controlled. The colours are specific colours so they don't cause sensory responses. You know, you don't walk into many offices that are bright red because that might induce anger somewhere or this might this. So it's a very a very muted and a very comfortable society that we live in. And, we've, you know, that has been almost revered as 
success or as ever revolution, mm-hmm. societal revolution, as opposed to internal evolution. Yeah, and and I think that when I look at what you're describing, I I, I can see a sort of human devolution um, mm. in the terms of our well, physically physical physically there's rising stress and anxiety there's no doubt about that um then we can go down the other the other routes as well but but what so have you traced a personality difference between let's just say the the hardcore climbers that you've been around with um or Mm -hmm. people in the military who face threat on a daily basis um (laughs) and people who don't people who live in their safe suburban lives driving around in their volvos um, mm. Have you traced any sort of like um, consistent personality trait differences? Mm. And it, well, I haven't done a study on it, but yes. Um, and there actually, like I said, there is studies on it. Interestingly enough, a lot of endurance, extreme and endurance athletes, as much as people think it's, they seem to be reckless and they seem to be impulsive, they're actually not. So all the, the science shows that they're very carefully. Uh, they're more control freaks than they are seeking impulsivity and seeking the adrenaline. They like to be pushed and they like to control within the realms of, you know, pushing, seeking more, really. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning, I think from what I've observed and been part of and also um, research, you know, read the research on, people who seek meaning or who work to have meaning in their life are more likely to be able to put themselves and cope with adverse and extreme situations than ones who don't. Ones who don't have any purpose or any meaning will follow the path that's pretty much in front of them, which is the comfortable pathway, which is the urban, you know, I say this from a a comfortable house in Sydney, um, but you see that it's a nine to five job. It's a, you know, it's routine, it's predictability. Now, I don't say that there's anything wrong with that because there's not, but people who are less inclined to take risk, to take chance, to feel alive because there is a meaning and a purpose for them, whether it's an individual one or whether they're doing it for the greater good, hmm. they're more likely to take risks. Okay, so... Okay, so you're drawing the correlation here between purpose and meaning, whether that's sort of like intrinsic purpose or whether that's for a, a greater good outside of themselves. Um, but what about if we strip away the purpose and the meaning part of it and we yeah. just say, and we just basically take, um, I just want to roll this, this, this idea to you and, and, and it might just be, it feels very simplistic. But <laughs> do you think that, and I'm bearing, and I'm thinking in my mind about, um, some of the people who I who, who I've worked with, who I've coached, who are highly high functioning, intelligent beings who think mm-hmm. a hell of a lot and probably think too much, um, mm. and they're high functioning except they feel this sort of like existential angst, this kind of like meaninglessness, mm. this hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, would a potential <laughs> path for these people just to go out and experience more hardcore danger and um, con- sort of like risks or just more extreme situations in life so that 
they can gain a different perspective on the relativity of the perceived stress that they feel like in their normal kind of suburban lives? Not necessarily. To some degree, yeah, so, but maybe not through more extreme just for the sake of extreme activities like whether it's bungee jumping or skydiving, that won't, but putting them in more um, physically, uh, putting them in different situations where they can appreciate how much they have, you know, sending them to go and work in a remote village in Nepal or in India or something like that, that, you know, that might help, again, because what they might then see, you know, they realise they might need to have purpose and meaning. But I think the biggest thing is... With the existential angst, it's often caused by somebody operating outside their values. So with people who are really high-functioning, achieving a lot, but in doing so there's something, their essence within them, something really deep within them is not being met. And that might be as simple as connection with another human being at a very deep level or it might be a a need for a challenge and stimulation and particularly... um, you know, in a distinct area, mm-hmm. or it might be the fact that they've put all their work, all, all their time, effort, and money into work, but have neglected what actually makes them happy. And a lot of people don't know what makes them happy anymore. And I think that is often the biggest key with this existential act, angst, because nowadays, more and more, people work. Then they come home, they might go to the gym, they come home, they turn on the TV, eat dinner, go to bed, do the same thing, the same thing, the same thing. Weekends come around, they might do an activity or a lot of it's, you know, again, um, going to a cafe or going out to dinner. But there's nothing where they're challenged, nothing where they're tapping into who they are, what gives them passion, what gives them joy. And a lot of people, and I and I hear this through a lot of uh, my contacts, a lot of work that I've done in different domains. So again, military or police, or also with the TV work and rugby league players and all sorts. What do you do when you're not at work? Well, I don't know. What hobbies do you have? I don't really have any hobbies. What do you do? Well, I'm on social media. You know, I kind of just spend time on that when I get home. No hobbies, no extracurricular activities, which means there's a lack of social engagement with. Um, people who are similar or people who they can learn from as well. And I think that is the crux of the angst. It's being discordant with one's values or not even knowing what their values actually are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what do you think about... Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom there, right? I think there's, there's, there's a, this whole idea of understanding what you actually stand for. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with this whole values piece, Kate, because um, it can seem like we're just arbitrarily picking out adjectives that sound mm-hmm. really idealistic from the sky and then mm-hmm. ascribing to them like this great power and potency. Um, mm-hmm. But it, that can, it can feel artificial. Um, mm-hmm. So can you speak a little bit on that? Like how a human could go about this process of actually like tapping into a... What are their values yeah. and, and how can it... Yep. And do you know what? It's a really, it's actually quite a simple thing to do. There's a number of exercises that you can do, one of which is quite morbid, but, you know, I'll tell you that one anyway. Basically, I want you to imagine that you are dead, okay? You're in a car accident, you walked across the road and you got hit by a car really suddenly. So it wasn't a prolonged death and it wasn't... You weren't chronically ill or anything like that, but you are dead very suddenly. 
Now, for some reason, your funeral has been expedited. So you died yesterday, your funeral is two days later, and your funeral is happening as we speak. You are a ghost or a spectre hovering above, hovering in the back corner of um, where your funeral is being held. And you're standing there watching as friends and families are standing up, either giving a eulogy or talking about their memories of you or describing you as a person. Okay, so I want you to close your eyes for a moment and imagine this scene, which is, you know, friends and family talking about you. Maybe not necessarily for this exercise telling stories, but just describing you as they knew you as a person, your characteristics. Now, pick three different people, could be family, could be friends, could be partners, and tell me or write down what they would say about you at your funeral if you're dead, okay? Not what you want them to say about you, but what they would actually say about you. Awesome. Then The next part of that, so you write that down on a list. The next part of that, you go, okay, what would I want them to say about mm. me? Then you compare the two lists mm. and then you can make things actionable. So mm. am I actually behaving and I'm presenting in a way that is meaningful, that, you know, are people seeing how I really want to be? And if they're seeing something different, what one, what's going on there, what's actually getting in the way of me being who I want to be, being who I am, and then let me work out a plan of attack, an actionable plan of attack to retap into that. And it might be a change of jobs or it might be a relocation or it might be spending more time with the people that you love or, you know, places mm. that those characteristics can be nurtured and mm-hmm. fostered and then that you in turn can be nourished. Mm. So if, that's awesome. Thank you for that practical exercise. So if I'm a person, um, a hypothetical person of low self-esteem um, mm-hmm. and I've got this particular lens that I'm looking through that says mm-hmm. um, I'm not loved and I'm not good enough. And, mm-hmm. and so when I do that first part of that exercise, I come up with things like um, they think, I'm lazy or they think I'm stupid um, or things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not a great deal of positivity about them. Um, mm-hmm. and, then I, and then when I do the second part of that exercise, um, I come up with things like um, ind- independence and wisdom seeking and things like mm-hmm. that, like these mm-hmm. aspirational things, which I really don't mm-hmm. feel like fit, who, they don't feel like they fit right now. Like, mm-hmm. um, so is there a value in uh, taking on these aspirational values? Um, if they are your values, if they're what you believe in, your values are not things to aspire to necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can be part of your vision. But, you know, independent, if you cherish independence and you're living in an environment where you're highly dependent on everybody around you and everything is micromanaged, you're, there's going to be some pathology that comes out as a result of it. Okay, because it's actually inherently who you are to be independent, mm-hmm. right? So, if you have, yes, you have to be realistic about something. So, if someone, if it's a child who's twelve years old and wants to be independent, you know, there are going to be some pragmatic boundaries about how independent they can actually do. But they can be independents in some of their actions, mm-hmm. which will give them uh, more pride and more respect. If somebody has low self-esteem and they come in, you know, it, it's an exercise where you, you have to, they, the person has to choose someone who they, who loves them and who they love and be realistic and be held accountable for keeping 
what that, you know, what their friends would say, realistic. Again, it's about what the other person would say, not what Mm -hmm. you, you know, you think they might say because of your own lens. It's Mm -hmm. about what would come out of their mouth. Mm -hmm. Why are they your friend? Why are they standing up there at the eulogy? They chose to. They didn't have to. Let's Mm -hmm. bring it back to that. And again, so it's, you know, simple exercise, but you can keep it grounded and not you don't want things to be too aspirational mm-hmm. from you know because yeah. it's you know it's like people when they aspire to happiness all the time and all the studies show is the more you aspire to happiness the more unhappy you're going to be because you, you never reach it, it. Yeah. so exactly right 100%. so but the you know the values are what sits within you you know what yeah. already sits within you but you're just not necessarily yeah, listening to that and then use that as a framework for your mm. life plan or your action plan, behavioral plan going from there. Mm. Got it. Awesome. What's something that came to mind when you were, when you were talking there um, is this idea that, you know, I, neuroplasticity um, is something that I want to discuss. And when, when you think about, like it's interesting talking about neuroplasticity because we're essentially talking about this like ancient piece of hardware, the brain, um, and we're now like in in recent times, um, this scientific discoveries have led to us to understand how we can change um, shape, size, functional connectivity of certain areas, which can change behavior behavior and things like that. So, mm. and then, but on one hand, when I think about evolution, this process of evolution, I think. Like that evolution has optimized us to survive, but not necessarily to thrive. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in many respects, we're, our, our biology is <laughs> driving us towards procreation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're really being optimized to kind of have sex. And then mm-hmm. are we being optimized? There's no sort of like natural evolutionary optimization for thriving in the sense of like joy and euphoria and things like that um now that can for some people that sort of realization that that is what is happening from an evolutionary perspective can be extremely bleak and 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 depressing and it can lead people down into this sort of like nihilistic uh, spiral um what's your what's your take on on that on that whole idea around surviving and thriving and our evolutionary inheritance? Well, I, so, you know, Stephen Hawking's talks about essentially that our purpose, there is no meaning Mm -hmm. to humans existence, but our purpose is to procreate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we don't necessarily have to have a meaning to live but the studies do show if you choose to put meaning into your life and believe in a meaning, you will thrive. You will psychologically and physically be in a better and stronger place and you're more likely to move towards success in whatever realm you have. So the reality is evolution happens um, when we use our muscles. So evolution or evolution is functional, really. If you think about how we came as gorillas as apes you know how our bodies transformed they transformed because of what muscles what what we were using and what we weren't using our brain has the capacity to change but it won't change unless you practice it changing so that's where neuro 
neuroplasticity comes in because it basically says we can change our brain, we can change our thinking, we can evolve. We, we, without tapping into that, without actively and consciously doing exercises to do that, then it will, like anything else, the brain is a muscle, it will atrophy. We won't be able to use it. So by using your brain, you're building strength in it, by using it in different ways, that's where the neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. you know, allows us, will allow us to thrive more. Yeah. I think you... And yes, yeah, sorry, go. If you put, you, you mentioned if you choose to put meaning in your life, you will thrive. Hmm. So I completely agree. And, and I think that the difference between us and as a, a gorilla or baboon is the fact that we do have this amazing prefrontal cortex that allows us to choose something like hmm. what we will put meaning into. Um, hmm. It's a responsibility, isn't it? It's, it's like there's, there's an opportunity there, but for some people I sense that, I don't know, it, it, is, it, is it too challenging? Is it, is it, um, is it too arbitrary? It is, is the fact that there is this like conscious choice to put meaning, um, it escapes some people and they, and, and they struggle to find meaning. Like how, hmm. how can this be when we have the capacity to find meaning? How can it be that some humans will choose to not... Um, use their capacity to deploy meaning in their life and will therefore suffer. I suppose it's the same way that some people choose to never exercise when they've got a body that can exercise. It, it's quite literally a personal choice. Yeah. Some people don't know that they can put meaning in. Some people have tried and it hasn't worked. You know, there's a hundred different reasons why some will and some won't. What was really interesting before is when you said it's almost a duty or you feel it might be a duty for people to do this. Mm. That's a really interesting comment because what that taps into is almost a collective conscience. Mm. You know, it's our duty to do that. So as a species, we evolve with greater use or creativity or plasticity in our brains that becomes more effective at, at, you know, Mm. everything. But yet that would require everyone most humans to do that. So as a species, that's mm. where the change comes. But that also ties, links straight back into what we are talking about right at the beginning with a hyper-individualized society. You know, the people mm. are nowadays far more fixated on themselves and on their world rather than on connecting with others. And it's mm-hmm. the connection with others, you know, the connecting with others might be where their meaning comes in or the connecting. But without that connection with others... You know, again, it's it's a factor that means we won't necessarily thrive. Mm. But without that around, people don't know the importance of it. You know, you don't know what you don't know. Mm. In this world that goes, it's all about the self. It's all about the individual, individual success. You know, more remote communities, more Indigenous communities more often, it takes a village to raise a child, and they do. Here it takes, you know, a mother, a mother and a father, and maybe childcare and, you know, but it, all those roles, all those people, all, none of that beauty of collectivism almost or a collective mm. conscience is there. Yep. Yep. And when you're talking, uh, it, 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 what you said there kind of challenged almost what Stephen Hawking said um, about 
there is no meaning. The purpose of life is procreation. There is no meaning. Because mm. when, I, when I look at nature, when I immerse myself in nature, um, I see that there is a blueprint for meaning. In that there is this, first of all, like Darwinian theory dictates that it's like evolve or die, adapt or die. Um, mm -hmm. But then there's something else in nature. And it's like, if you don't contribute to the ecosystem, you don't stick around for very long. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's a thing in nature, isn't it? Like, there's, yeah. there's, there's these networks, there's, um, there's, things, there's interdependencies, there's synergies, and mm -hmm. there's certainly no waste. There's, there's no thing that, like, I know that we all hate flies and mosquitoes, but they're definitely serving a purpose of, like... <laughs> I don't know, blood distribution or, or whatever it might be from like <laughs> yeah. us big humans to like little birds. Um, but there, there is therefore a blueprint to say, oh, the nature and we are nature is basically telling us that for us to thrive, we need to contribute to the ecosystem around us. Mm. And yet we as humans try to because we believe we are the most intelligent species we try and trump that so we get rid of nature we build cities we uh stop listening to our bodies all of these natural things that are worked in one big ecosystem that humans are a part of you know humans are a part of nature our the human condition almost tries to dominate Mm -hmm. And control. Mm -hmm. mm. Control over contribution. Now that's an interesting mm. topic. Mm. Like human optimizing for control, which is definitely mm -hmm. what I see out there. Like, mm -hmm. um, like security is a is a form of control. So, like, mm -hmm. I'm gonna like save up twenty percent of my thingies for for my pension fund so I can be more secure. That's a form of control, right? Yeah. Like. Um, like the New South Wales government forcing us to wear bicycle helmets um, <laughs> so it, and, yeah. and threatening us with a $400 fine if we don't. It's like this is, yeah. this, this is control, right, um, versus contribution. Um, that's, that's an interesting kind of thing that's going on there. So I wonder if, like in, in the quest for more meaning and a, a more fulfill, fulfilling life, um, an individual human could say, where is it that I'm seeking control in my life that mm -hmm. I can relinquish? Um, and where is it that I can contribute in my life that I haven't yet thrown energy into? Mm. And do you know what? It's a perfect segue. What we know about control is it's often related to fear. I mean, there's mm. the side of it that's related to greed and, and to power, but a lot of it's related to fear and uncertainty. And we try and over-control things because we're uncertain. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. So there's a really interesting talk uh, by Boyd Varty, and he talks about uncertainty as um, uncertainty as a medium to finding your bliss. And I like to you know take it one step further and think about as fear as the pathway to aliveness mm -hmm. so if you can identify what the uncertainty you know as you say what are you where can you relinquish control right 
Mm-hmm. If you're holding too tightly to something, it means you're fearing letting go. Where can you relinquish? What What are you? What is that thing mm-hmm. that you're holding too tightly to? Therefore, underneath that, it shows you what your fear is. Right where that fear is, that is like the beacon. That is, if you can identify what that is and then address that fear, not through control, but through accepting it and by facing it, by incorporating it into your life, that right there is the pathway to aliveness, to vitality. Mm. 100% 100% agree with you and I, I often, I've, I've written about this, I've spoken about this, how, how for me fears are now like my friends. Like there's, mm. this, there, there's this book uh, or this series of books um, by Carlos Castaneda that really informed me when I was a university student um, and they're pretty like out there and shamanic and kind of like interesting but the, the wise dude in that book, the sort of Yoda figure, um, says make Make death your friend um, mm. because there is nothing in life that is as reliable and certain as death. Mm. And there's a certain kind of like, you know, when you think about your friends, what do you, what do you want from them? You want dependency. You want them to mm. be there for you. <laughs> you. You want to know that you can rely on them. And, and this idea of like death holding that same sort of like space in your life where you're like, yeah, 100% going to be there for me. It's going to be there. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. And I have that same sort of thing with fear so that mm. like when I become aware of my fears, it's like, uh, oh, that's interesting. I wonder, <laughs> yeah. I wonder what this means. I wonder what direction this is going to uh, allow me to explore further levels of growth. Yeah, um, and therefore freedom. And therefore That's freedom. That's the thing is so much freedom. And even, as you say, if you make death your friend, there's freedom in that. Totally. Oh, massively. Like, yeah, 100%. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest breakthroughs for, for me was over, like, working with my fear of death, which dominated a lot of my, my 20s and just getting to the point where I'm like, ah, oh, it's definitely happening, it's awesome. And, you know, there's a, a huge amount of freedom that came with that. But just sticking with these with these fears, okay? So you you basically just drew this kind of like this this kind of model of um, fear to growth to freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's let, let's look at that. So because we obviously want growth and we want freedom in our life, or every mm-hmm. single one of us, and every single one of us um, to various de- to varying degrees uh, is is facing a fear. Like this is just human experience, right? Um, mm-hmm. It might be a mild social anxiety. Social anxiety. It, it might be a like stop you dead in your tracks for fifty years, like phobia. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then we can and let's bring climbing into this as as, mm. as a real practical example of you know being on the wall and literally facing a fear response and and, mm-hmm. and, and working through it. Um, so, can you talk to me about? Like some, some, some practical strategies for, for, for dealing with fear? Mm, yeah. The quickest and the easiest one is breathing. As you know, so fear triggers off your um, fight or flight response, which means everything is activated. You're perceiving a threat. So you, your body is responding to a threat. Now, way back when, it used to actually respond to, you know, in, when saber-toothed tigers are around, it would respond to an actual threat. Whereas because... These days, we don't have as many actual um, threats, actual externalized threats. 
that might kill us, then it responds to things or it it triggers or it gets set off far more sensitively. Mm-hmm. So what happens is your brain, your amygdala, which is like your threat detection system, and it's almost like an alarm in the back of your brain, detects a threat, it goes off, um, kicks off your parasympathetic nervous system, then all that happens then is, you know, adrenaline courses through your body, blood you know, it goes to your extremities to pump you, to prime you, to fight or to flight. Your pupils dilate. Everything is designed so you can focus on the threat in front of you, right? Um, you can't concentrate and take in the bigger surroundings. Everything is is, is targeted there. And the, the aim is that you either run away from the saber-toothed tiger or you go and fight it. Now, what that means is your body is flooded with adrenaline whenever that amygdala system goes off. That's also very, very exhausting. So if you can learn to control the biological response, then what you'll also do is control the cognitive panic or the cognitive patterns that are often are aligned with that. Now, what happens for people whose fear almost becomes panic or whose fear doesn't get channeled down a a problem-solving pathway, which is most people, to be honest, is their brain goes, there's a threat there. My body is responding to the threat. The threat must be real. Oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. They start, that, they start breathing really fast and over-breathing. When you over-breathe, carbon, too much carbon dioxide is expelled from your body. Therefore, the oxygen and carbon dioxide flow or balance isn't maintained. Therefore, the balance is out of whack in your brain, which means you can't take on accurate information about the situation in front of you. Okay? So that basically that you, your, your brain then goes, shit, the threat is real, we need to panic, we need to panic, and it truncates your thinking to do anything else. doesn't mean you'll get away any faster, but it doesn't let anything else go in. Then your, your brain goes, shit, my body's responding, my heart rate's beating, I'm shaking, all that sort of stuff. That's really bad. You start breathing faster again. So cognitively... And physiologically, your body starts going into chaos, really. What you need to do, or one really quick way to short-circuit it, is to slow breathe, much the same way as meditation, much yogic breathing, anything. Slow down your breathing. It slows down your um, body tension, reduces your body tension rather, slows down your heart rate, reduces your blood pressure, slows down your thinking pattern, which means you can respond to what's in front of you. So quick and dirty trick slow breathing. EB4 is one way, Elysium breathing four, which basically is breathing in for four and breathing out for four for four minutes, right? Obviously in the middle of a panic attack, you're not really going to go, okay, four minutes time this. But if you get in the practice of breathing slowly morning and night or breathing slowly when you're on the rock, slows everything down, reduces the tension with which you're holding on, the tighter you grip the rock, the more your strength is going to deplete and you're going to fall off. Right, so it's all about keeping your body calm because that will then keep your brain calm. Okay, so most people's fear, which they don't realize, starts from thinking patterns. They'll look at a wall, they'll look at the rock in front of them and go, I can't get that. What if I can't get that? What if I fall? What if? And they're not necessarily conscious of it. But the moment you start going into that already, the negativity and the stress response kicks in, the cortisol kicks in, the adrenaline starts to go. It's already depleting and your brain is already detaching itself and unfocused from 
the step-by-step process of being on the rock. What can I feel physically here? What is there? You know, it's about, again, staying in the moment and not listening to your brain. That's the biggest thing. When it comes to fear, your brain is your absolute worst enemy, your absolute worst enemy because it will always go down the worst-case scenario. So the best thing you can do is tap into your body, slow down your body. Your body knows what to do. Isn't that interesting? Like we, we all, we've all stood on top of the the diving board or, or the rock going to do a cliff jump and we're in that fear response. Our palms have got sweaty. Our friends are egging, egging us on and all we can vision in our mind is splatting on some, yeah. some, <laughs> some hard thing. <laughs> well, like, yep. And our brain really, really is quite imaginative when it comes to these worst case scenarios, isn't it? <laughs> Great. It's great, isn't it? It's, very... just, it's so creative. And you just, yeah, it's wonderful. Afterwards, you're like, where did that come from? It's like the, the scenarios not, are out there. And not there. just yeah. where did it come from, but at the time, it's so believable. Oh. And in your head, it is going to happen. It's not even this is a possibility. It's an inevitability that that extreme outcome will happen. Mm. So with fear, we overestimate the probability of a negative outcome and we underestimate our ability to cope with that outcome. Yes, for sure. And this is the result of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of generations of survivors who survived through increased pessimism and, and <laughs> probably being the more cautious of the lot. Um, because, yeah. because if you had um, four children and... Let's say one of them was the more risky one. Well, statistically speaking, he got he got wiped out. <laughs> so we've had we've got this sort of like nervous Nelly kind of like uh, genetic inheritance going through us. Okay, so 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 breathing, yeah. And another quick hack for other people. Actually, I'm not going to use that word. I hate the word hack. Um, mm-hmm. Another quick um, strategy that I've been working on. Um, which is very much aligned to, to breathing and box breathing and slow breathing. But I really feel like the focus on the exhale um, is a very, very, very interesting part of this. Um, and a lot of the free dive training that I've done um, has placed an, an emphasis on the exhale. And some of the uh, research, some of the scientific research I've been reading recently around breathing um, mm. shows that there is an interesting thing that happens neurologically when we extend particularly that exhale, and mm-hmm. through the nose also mm. stimulates a different response in the brain to through the mouth. Through the mouth, yeah. Yeah, which is fascinating. And, I, and, I, and, and this might not be for everybody, but um, I urge people out there just to, just to see what happens um, within the, in their own state of stress. When you just, in, in, you're in a stressful situation, take like three to five like full cleansing, massive deep breaths, and then... And then on the last one, just let it all out and hold that um, negative breath holds. Um, for some people, it can actually create more panic. But for, for, mm. but for other people, for, for me, maybe because of some of the training I've done, um, it's the gateway to, to real peacefulness um, <laughs> quite quickly, which is quite interesting. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that I often do with, the, with Elysium, which is a high-performance company, yeah. we induce... <laughs> This is actually an ethical thing to do, even if it doesn't sound like it. We induce hyperventilation in a lot of the people we work with. And it's so that they can feel the impact of breathing as a tool on their body, you know, how to 
what it's like when they're breathing ineffectively and then teach them obviously the best me- the best methods of breathing and so that they learn to understand what it feels like in their body and also how powerful it is when they do it the best way so it's a really interesting physiological experiment because probably not dissimilarly to your technique when you know the discomfort of not breathing properly or not feeling like you can breathe properly causes more panic or can cause more panic but again teaching physiological responses in and around that and what you can do is such a simple and powerful thing and so peaceful at the end of it yeah i i I think we can also you know and, and and obviously this is the case because of how people like rock climbers get through their fears and they become changed because of it but I, but I think like playing with the boundaries of your comfort so that you become comfortable with the uncomfortable is mm. is a hugely pragmatic um, strategy. Um, well, that's what you have. I mean, every bit of fear work that you ever do with in terms of phobias or anxieties or anything, it's all about exposure. Ex- essentially, you know, called exposure therapy, whether it's trauma, whether it's literally. And again, on the rock, that's in some of the. Um, the coaching sessions that I run, it's people who fear falling, which is a huge fear of people because it, it's an unnatural feeling. So they don't even necessarily realize they're afraid of falling with climbing. What you have to do is make them fall and fall and fall. Mm. And you continually fall. So whatever you avoid is the exact thing that you have to do. For someone who's fallen off a horse, what's the treatment? You get back on. You get back on. You learn to tolerate mm. the discomfort and build self-efficacy from there because it you're proving to yourself that you can actually do whatever it is that you fear but I most people go good yeah the i think that's super awesome advice i actually think like what you just said is is simple but it's 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 undervalued i don't think that like i'll use a surfing analogy i know that there's going to be some surfers listening to this and mm. i know that there's people out there who are and, and rightfully so, that they're, they're afraid of like getting taken over the falls and getting smashed by the wave. Mm. And um, that is stopping your surfing progress. And what, what I've actually done, and my buddy Steve, he absolutely loves getting smashed by waves. Like he's trained himself to just enjoy the process of being out of control and the wave just taking him. And he knows he can hold his breath. He knows he can relax his body. And he calls it a, a massage. And he's like, oh, I just got a really good massage from that wave. <laughs> um, and this is, and it's really interesting. Like, I, I really think, like, what you just said is, like, for, for me, I'm a very uh, average or very inexperienced rock climber. And I, and I have this thing that, I've, that I'm labeling vertigo. I don't, I don't really know if that's valid. But I certainly get dizzy and feel like I'm getting sucked into some sort of vortex when I'm, when I'm on a ski lift even. Um, but I, I, I've had that, like, frozen thing on top of a wall where I know like intellectually speaking I know that there's a there's a really diligent person holding this 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 rope they're belaying me and I'm completely safe but yet Mm. there's this like irrational like fear response where I freeze on the wall and I can't and I can't Mm. move and I really haven't practiced just falling and falling Mm. and falling and falling and but I but in my dreams I have had these falling dreams of like climbing walls and it's like wow this this idea of just doing it and doing it is is very interesting Mm -hmm. and i think it's got application in all areas of life you know if you're Mm. scared of talking to strangers go and spend spend an afternoon approaching strangers Mm. 
Yeah. And we do. And you know what? That's what I used to run a group, um, a social anxiety group with kids. And what we used to make them do is take them to the shopping center. Again, this sounds crueler than it actually is. Um, because, you know, social anxiety is a fear of negative evaluation. So they'd always think people were watching them and always, you know, they'd be really embarrassed about whatever they do. And we'd make them dance or make a lot of noise or, you know, something in the middle of the shopping center. And most people would walk by and not notice. And that behavior or not react to it or smile and you know say hi to them or something and that experiment that behavioral experiment showed the kids that it's actually okay that they can and so it's always about doing it the behavioral side of it because thinking you know when you're in panic when there's fear (laughs) your brain you just don't want to listen to your brain you just don't even try listening to your brain it's about again tapping back into your body and doing it you know, it's it's yeah. so behavioural to tackle that fear because your brain will tell you to avoid it because it's safer and it'll give you a thousand rationalisations and all sorts. But again, back to just get back into your body. Totally. This 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 uh, theme of embodiment is is just so important, uh, and especially in this culture of overthinking that we have. There's almost mm. like glorification of like consistent cognition and analysing and rationalising and mm. and. Um, it's almost like culturally speaking, I know that things are changing, um, but culturally speaking, we've got such a, a like a, 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 an, over, a, an overvaluation of rationality and logic and an underappreciation of intuition and feeling and emotions. And, you know, we could talk about that for days. Um, mm. So, okay, so you've given like one, one route to um, getting into our body, which is, which, which is breathing. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any other strategies that you would use um, mm. on a wall to, to get into yeah. our bodies? There's a couple. Um, one, and you can use this, you know, use this anywhere for anything, and it's, it's simple and it's a really, really effective tool. It's called grounding. And so sit quietly wherever you are or stand wherever you are and notice. We'll start with four. You look around and you identify four things that you can see. And then after you've identified and, you know, said out loud or written them down, four things that you can see or said it to the person in front of you, four things that you can hear, four different things. And then four things that you can feel. You can feel kinesthetically, so it's not emotions. It's things like I can feel the wind or, I, you know, the wind on my arm or I can feel um, my shirt on my arm, whatever it might be, I can mm-hmm. feel a thorn in my toe. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do that. So four things, four things that you can see, four things that you can hear, four things that you can feel, and then pyramid it down. Three things that you can see, three things that you can hear, three things that you can feel, two things, and then one thing. It probably takes about you know three or four minutes. And what that does, if you try it, it means you're so focused on the senses around you and you're, you're in your body and you're focusing on the environment around you, but you're not listening to your head. You're observing and you're tapping out of the thoughts and you're tapping back into the body. So if there was fear there, you stop noticing it because what you felt are the bits of where would be a good handhold or where would be a good foothold or what your shoe feels like right now. And it's not your shoe is tight and therefore it's bad and therefore your foot's going to go numb. And there's none of the judgment. It's literally identifying that your shoe is tight. Or you can feel your shoe on your foot or your shoe is tight. You know? And, again, back, that's out of your head. So you can clearly just retap into your body. Mm. And the, other, the third one, and this is just what I do anyway, 
you look, if you uh, on the rock, if you're starting to overbreed and you're holding on too tight, or you you know for a moment you're in your head again and you're trying to work out the sequence and you can't work out the sequence, just saying to yourself as a mantra, let the body climb or let your body climb. And for me, your body knows what to do. That's the thing. If you're again out of your head and not thinking, your body will actually climb naturally or surf naturally or, you know, melt into the environment as it's supposed to if you're not overthinking it. Mm-hmm. So let it's, your body climb. Let your body climb. I love that. It's actually refreshing or it's actually nice um, to hear uh, you as a clinical psych, as a, as a doctor, talk about uh, mantras and affirmations um, because <laughs> usually when people hear those, hear those words or those concepts, they're coming from very much the other end of the spectrum. Um, and I've, I've, I've used these, I call them statements of power because I use them mm. to, to remind myself of my power. And I love, I love just um, using them first thing in the morning when I, you know, just as I'm coming into waking consciousness. Um, mm. And I really find that they set the tone for my day. Um, and I do use them in surfing situations as well when I'm feeling like freaked out. So that's, that's mm. definitely a really effective one. Um, mm. Just just before, um, what, what I, I want to go deeper into that um, fear as the pathway to aliveness, um, mm-hmm. uncertainty as a medium to finding your bliss. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so we've talked through some three really great strategies for dealing with fear in the, in the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Now, where does bliss come into this and where does um, aliveness come into this? Well, to me, aliveness is... I'm going to be very careful of my words here because <laughs> I don't want to say a meaning or a purpose or an aim or anything. But having aliveness, joy, vitality in the world, in your world, in your existence... That to me is something worth aiming for. Oh, it's everything. It's like you know, I'm not a so, so I can say what I want, but it's the expression <laughs> of life force. <laughs> That's exactly right. And you know, there's there's so many people that don't have that, and that are having existential crises, or there is so much the exhibition yeah. of pathology. I think is as a result of a deficit of the aliveness. Yes. You know, so. To me, fear is a pathway to aliveness because it's freedom Mm -hmm. and it's joy and there are no limitations on whatever it is that you can do or want to do. Mm -hmm. And uncertainty to bliss, well, I mean, that was Boyd Vardy, so, you know, you'll have to ask him a little bit more about that one. But it's essentially the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Addressing what's holding you back from being you and having a full expression of all the colours and all the timbres of life, good Mm. and bad. You know, it's not just about radiance and the wonderful side of things, but, you know, the uncertainties and negative, it's it's the yin and the yang, the the balance that we need is fear can be seen as negative, takes you to a place of Mm. energy, of goodness, uncertainty that we think is that we we're less likely to be have to have aliveness if there's no fear around us all the time, mm. or at some point rather, you know, we're less likely to stay in a state of bliss, or it's going to we're going to the bliss will reduce in its in its potency or its salience around us if we're there all the time, if we're in it all the time. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that, and, and and one of the frameworks for living that I use is this fear as a pathway to flow um yeah 
And something I wanted to just briefly ask you about, it's this kind of like this, this polarity, like, um, or relativity, like, it, so, so what we've spoken about there, so, so if we look at fear and, fear and aliveness or fear and flow, mm-hmm. we can see that there's um, something that's difficult and challenging that's opening up the possibility for something that's blissful and meaningful and enjoyable, right? Mm. So here mm-hmm. we've, got, um, not, we've got what words should I, what labels should I use? I mean, it's not, I think the labels of like good and bad are just not relevant. I mean, we've mm-hmm. got, I think let's just use um, challenge and enjoyment, just 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 mm-hmm. for, just for, just for simplicity. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now there's quite clearly a, a, a relativity there, a correlation there. Okay, mm. between challenge and growth. Let's say. Okay. Yeah. Now, is there a relativity? Do you think between sadness and joy, or pain and pleasure, like? Because there's a lot of people out there who are deeply mired in um, really heavy and hard situations in life. And um, then there's a lot of people out there who are just sort of like floating around on this kind of like, like this level, this level playing through their, through their life. And, mm. you know, is, is, is there a certain sort of, from a psychological perspective, is there sort of like a richness to be cherished about the pain and the suffering? Yes. And there's a lot of work that looks at artists, there's a lot of work that looks at musicians and their breadth of emotionality. It's a lot of uh, correlation studies as opposed to causative or causal studies, but basically um, appreciating, you know, the level to which you appreciate music is also correlated to the breadth of your emotionality. Mm. You're in your name. So, um, yes, yes, yeah. there is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of people who will, um, you know, either be dysthymic or, or as you, you know, it's, it's almost, this is, where I, <laughs> this is where I get out my whiteboard and draw things, yeah, <laughs> draw yeah, yeah. all sorts for you. Um, but, yes, you know. Yeah. I, I think life is about contrast. Like fundamentally, yeah. I, I think this whole fear flow, fear aliveness, um, like model, it allows us to understand that life is about contrast, and, and, and or it's about and not not even necessarily about contrast, but it's about everything. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's about having all. You don't have to have one and then the opposite of it, but it's about experiencing each different type. Yes, and. I've been reading a little bit of Stoic philosophy lately, which is mm-hmm. like Seneca and uh, yeah, and these these ancient wise Greek and Roman dudes, and and basically Stoicism is is the the willful, intentional um, work to see what is valuable in all situations, um, mm-hmm. no matter how difficult or challenging, and. This is definitely a learned behavior that, that one can develop in oneself. Um, yeah. To the point where I, I called up a buddy the other day and, and he's like, oh, Jira, um, I just missed my flight to America. And I was like, oh, no. 
And he was like, oh, no, it's awesome. I was, I was, I was waiting to see what opportunity this would open up. And then you, you phoned me. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, I'm worth 1500 bucks. Um, but it's, you can definitely train yourself to, and I'm sure in the military, you, you know, you, you would have done this sort of training where you're like, okay, so, so you're more circumspect on analyzing the situation. So instead of like this binary thing of, oh, it's either wonderful or it's really fucking shit. Oh, sorry. Hmm. Um, you, you, can, you can be like more analytical and be like okay this this is different but there's opportunities inherent in this Mm, yeah you see things in a different way through a different lens because you know with some situations they are as you are you're deployed you're not deployed you might die okay well that's fine let's see what else is around Mm. yeah 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 awesome we could talk forever but we got to wrap it up Kate. (laughs) Uh, we've been going for an hour and ten um for a 45 minute show so we've done really really well (laughs) But thank you so much uh, for coming on and, um, you know, really getting into, yeah, some, the, the psychology of fear. It's been, it's been fascinating. Um, I know that people find it useful. So, so how can people learn more about the work that you do? Well, I've got a website, uh, com, and we've also got our high-performance company is www.elysiumhp.com.au or on the Elysium HP Facebook page. So contact me through any ways or just have a look around and see what takes you fancy and go from there. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jiro. It's been wonderful. Oh, and if anybody wants to ask questions, are you open for me to sending any any questions? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I love questions. The juicier ones are better. How good was that? Kate really knows her stuff when it comes to the mind, when it comes to the practical application of tools to overcome fear and live and flow. I was having this thought the other day how... Really, when you think about the, the neuroscience of flow states, it actually is the art of living without fear. You're actually technically, scientifically, you're transcending fear to achieve this state of flow. And that's a beautiful way to look at it. When you think about all the things that stand in the way of living your most flowing life are some sort of fear, often disguised as a subtle anxiety or a insecurity, but it's all fear. And so by learning to actually become aware of our fears and then transcend them that is actually the the most powerful way to living a life in flow if you want to lo- learn more about techniques and philosophies and practices and be held accountable to designing this life of flow um, i really encourage you to check out www.flowtribe.co that's flowtribe.co um, it's our community it's the flow state membership community um, where a bunch of humans from about 25 different countries who all achieve flow in a whole bunch of different ways all come together in one platform to discuss uh, how to live in the flow of life, to meet up, to inspire each other, to uh, work on techniques around breath work and meditation and risk-taking, adventure. Um, so if you're looking for community, if you're yearning for that, that bunch of people who are operating at that, that level, then check out flowtribe.co. Otherwise, we'll catch you next time uh, for the next episode of the Flow State Performance Podcast. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.